Fighting for the Faith is listener-supported radio. That means we depend upon you and your generous gifts and financial contributions in order to continue to bring Fighting for the Faith to you and to the world. If you don't already support us, you can do so by visiting our website, fightingforthefaith.com. When you get there, you can click on one of our two friendly yellow buttons, or you can make your gift payable to Fighting for the Faith and then send it to Post Office Box 13344, Grand Forks, North Dakota, zip code 58208. And thank you for your support. It's time for another edition of Fighting for the Faith, Friday, December 18th, 2015. All right, today's program all over the map. No theme. In fact, I think first hour will be, well, a little bit longer than an hour. But we do that a lot here. Got a groove out here. Hang on a second. Muppet dance if you're sitting down. Tuning in, you're listening to Fighting for the Faith. My name is Chris Roseboro. I am your servant in Jesus Christ, and this is the program that dishes up a daily dose of biblical discernment, the goal of which help you to think biblically, help you to think critically, help you slow down, slow down, stop, open up your Bible, and compare what people are saying in the name of God to the Word of God. Sadly, there is no shortage of crazy things being said about God, being said about what His will is for your life, being said about what you know, what the Bible teaches when the Bible doesn't teach or say or reveal any of the things that these people are saying. And unfortunately, uh, the culprits nowadays are, well, the most popular pastors, preachers, teachers, conference speakers, self-proclaimed prophets, prophetesses, self-proclaimed apostles and apostolettes, and uh, so-called vision-casting leaders and those put forward by the evangelical industrial complex as, you know, those who we need to be listening to, whose merchandise you know, we need to be buying and who's, you know, studies stuff we need to be studying instead of the word of God. Yeah, that's how that goes. And over and again, we find that what these people are saying has absolutely nothing whatsoever to do with what God's word actually says. And this is very tragic because false doctrine can't save you. And the reality is, is that biblical Christianity is far more amazing and comforting and, uh, well, true, <laughs> you know, there's that going for it too, then then what these people are putting forward, that what these people are putting forward is just complete nonsense. They are literally scratching, itching ears and teaching for shameful gain the things that they ought not to teach. So let's talk about what we're going to do on today's episode of Fighting for the Faith. I made a, a, an executive decision here, and the executive decision kind of goes this way. I, I wanted to do email, but I decided to hang off and hold on to email until... Wednesday of next week. We'll do an extended email segment on Wednesday of next week, which will be the last broadcast uh, of the year. Uh, will be ne- uh, Wednesday of next week. So we'll do email on that day. And so we're going to do something kind of normal-ish is the way I, I would put it. We're going to do a non-themed first hour, and we're going to end off with two sermons in the second hour. You heard me say sermons, and, and the reason you know, the reason I say that is because I hesitate to call my sermons good, but we're going to end off with two of the sermons I've recently delivered uh, for, the, uh, the, for the ending of the program in hour number two. But let's talk about what we're going to be doing in hour number one. 
we are going to begin with a prophetic Holy Orders Network Information Exchange Syndicate update. And we're going to be checking in with um, the prophetess, uh, yeah, I don't know what she is, uh, Amanda Wells. Uh huh. And, uh, and we're going to be listening to a portion of her message entitled, It's a New Season. It's a New Season. And all I can say is this is really old Bible twisting. It's not a new season. It's just old Bible twisting. And, uh, and so that's what we'll do there. Then we're going to switch gears, and I'm going to call this next segment, I'm going to put it under the auspices of the uh, emergent church movement. Uh, so it'll be a kind of a postmodern emergent movement update. And we're going to listen to a portion of a uh, NPR uh, radio segment where uh, the the three signatories, <laughs> I don't know what to call these guys, um, in Omaha, Nebraska, they they have a dream of a shared religious space, and so they're they've built a property in Omaha, Nebraska, on which there is a Christian church, and I'm using Christian in the loosest possible way. <laughs> yeah, Christian in name only might be the better way of putting it. it there's also a Muslim mosque and a Jewish synagogue on the same property, and they were interviewed on NPR about this on the All Things Considered uh, program. And so we're going to listen to that, at least a portion of it. And I specifically, I want you to hear in context what the so-called Christian pastor said. Uh, because, yeah, what this guy said ain't Christianity. It's something completely different. We'll take a break in somewhere in there. And uh, when we come back, we're going to do a little bit of a roundup. We're going to listen to a little bit of Keith Craft, so we'll do a Keith Craft update. We're going to listen to a little bit of Stephen Furtick, so we'll do a Stephen Furtick update. And uh, and what we're going to be doing in particular is going to go back to the beginning of 2015 and listen to each of them as they you know reveal or discuss the so-called word that God gave them for the year 2015. Since we're getting close to the end of the year, I want to talk about this particular technique uh, of vision casting leaders and its implications and point this out. And I think even for good measure, we'll throw in uh, George Davis. You know, he, he, you've never heard of him, but we'll give you another example of a, a 2015 word. And uh, and then if time permits, it depends on how long I run on that, we'll uh, get to the Creflo Dollar update. If we don't... If we don't get to Creflo Dollar today, I will slot him in next week because I do. I keep putting it off, and you know, today would be a good uh, day because we don't have a particular theme I'm uh, grinding on. And then in hour number two, uh, we're going to listen to two of my recent Advent sermons. Uh, I serve a congregation named Kongsvinger Lutheran Church up in Oslo, Minnesota, and uh, we're going to listen to uh, two of my sermons. Hang on one second here. I got to remember what which ones I'm playing. Um, but uh, we're going to be listening to um, the Advent sermon from week one of Advent, the, uh, the King Who Comes in the Name of the Lord. Uh, and uh, then we will also listen to the sermon entitled, uh, The Lion of Judah is on the Move. Those will be the two sermons that we will be listening to to end the week off. And uh, so with that, I think we need to uh, get into the program proper and since we're going to begin with the Prophetic Holy Orders Network Information Exchange Syndicate update, well, that requires us to do this. Down at an English fair, one evening I was there, when I heard a showman shouting underneath the flare, I've got a lovely bunch of coconuts. 
there they are standing in a row. Big ones, small ones, some as big as your head. Give them a twist, a flick of the wrist, that's what the showman said. I've got a lovely bunch of coconuts. Every ball you throw will make me rich. There stands me wife, the idol of me life, singing roly bowl a ball, a penny a pitch. Singing roly bowl a ball, a penny a pitch. Singing roly bowl a ball, a penny a pitch. Roly bowl a ball, roly bowl a ball, singing roly bowl a ball, a penny a pitch. Yeah, that's right. I've got a lovely bunch of coconuts. And talking about coconuts. <laughs> Let's talk about Amanda Wells. Yeah, yeah, I do think she's somewhat related to a coconut. Anyway, we're <laughs> we're going to be listening to a portion of a message entitled "It's a New Season," and uh, yeah, the profundity that is about to ensue, I'm sure, could cause your brain to explode. So please take all of the proper precautions. Here is Amanda Wells. There has been a change of season. I guess you, as a church, have realized it probably more than than any other. Yeah, you know, um, here in uh, North Dakota, uh, the uh, the season changed. In fact, we went from summer right into you know a very warm fall, and now winter's here. We got snow on the ground, and you know, in fact, it was uh, very cold. It was overnight. It was like four or five degrees. It was pretty cold. So yeah, there, there, I agree. There's been a change in season. We, we detected it here in North Dakota. We have to know our season. The sons of Issachar knew the seasons and the times. You know, we look at that and we think that they just knew the spiritual times. But actually, the sons of Issachar understood the seasons and the change politically, economically. They knew when the world was changing. And yeah, those sons of Issachar, you, know, not, you can't pull anything over on them, you know. The world is on such a time of change. Nothing has been the same. I mean, who would have thought the Middle East would have been where it is? And we have to understand the generations. We've got to understand the season of time generationally. Be- yeah, this, right. We, yeah. Yeah. I, that's, I mean, this is what I was telling my kids earlier, you know. Yeah, you got to, you know, the generational season thingy. Yeah. You got you got to be on top of that cuz you know the sons of Issachar were yeah <laughs> what does this mean this is not just a if you've noticed it's not just a gender thing anymore this is a generational seasonal seasonal change it's a bit like a, a generational seasonal change yeah right i'm i'm with you on that yeah this these generational things right your word this morning. That's a mouthful. But God is using both men and women. And today we're... we're right. Um, God has generally used men and women, um, really, since the world began. Um, one time he even used a donkey. I mean, you know, look it up. It's there in the Bible. But yeah, I, I agree. God has used and does use men and women, right? Yes, I feel like we need to get Captain Obvious from the Hotels.com commercial to sit in on this uh, particular segment here. The 2011, and the number 11 is significant because the first time that the number 11 was ever used in the Bible, it was a time of a whole season of change. Right, the the first time number 11 was used. Yeah. 
Yeah, I I had no idea I was supposed to pay attention to when particular numbers were used the first time in, in the Bible. So yeah, um, you know what I mean. When was the first time thirteen was used? Yeah, it's probably an important number. We better look it up. Maybe the number four. Yeah, and I in the 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 number one twenty. Yeah, whoo yeah that that first time that showed up. Oh, yeah, <laughs> it's. Just, yeah, you know, it, it's kind of like the, um, the Mr. Mom, you know, 220, 221, you know, whatever it takes, you know. That season of change cha- t- took place for Jacob, and it, it means a tipping point, and we're seeing such a... Yeah, uh, 11 means a tipping point. R- right. Um, where did you get that again? point today. I mean, just this year, we've seen earthquakes, we've seen floods, we've seen um, tsunamis in just six months. And- yeah, you know, um, th- those things generally happen, you know, on planet Earth. It's just is part of, you know, the things that occur here. In the Middle East in, in revolution. And so the body of Christ must understand where we are. And because yeah, where exactly are we? Because the you know, if you really think that we, it's important that we know where we are. Don't you think you're kind of you know beholden to actually you know teach something that's lucid? Because I don't feel like this is even coherent thought that I'm hearing here. We do not know where we are, and we don't shift and take advantage of this season. When the tipping point happens, we actually miss what God's going to do. And if we don't change, so when the tip, if we don't know where we are when the tipping point happens, because of the number eleven, the first time it showed up in Scripture, uh, then we're not going to know what to do. Yeah, oh, that's just terrible. I mean, could you imagine? I mean, seriously, how embarrassing is that? I mean, you know, here, here were, you know, the Issachar dudes, they knew what they were doing. And, you know, they never had any questions about it because they were always on you know, on point when it came to times and seasons and things like that. And if you don't understand how the earthquake thingies and the number 11 work, then you're not paying attention. Then, you know, when God starts to do things, you're going to sit there and go, ah, what am I supposed to do? <laughs> what am I listening to in the season we come paralyzed in the last season right and so many Christians are paralyzed in the last season yeah they're, they're right because of the number 11 I agree that totally paralyzes people right God wants us to move into this new season uh-huh. the purpose we come to church is not just to sit but it's to be trained and it's to be trained to be sent out into the systems of society we are to go from glory to glory from faith to faith and when the top clocks ticked over in 2011 we were plunged into a new season we- yeah because when the first time 11 showed up in the bible I mean that meant that when 2011 shows up you know poof yeah, we're pl- we're plunged into some new season thingy, right? Plunged into 2011, and I believe this is harvest time like we've never seen it before. Right. Now she just changed gears altogether and threw in the harvest time thingy. I, what am I supposed to do with this? How do I? What's the application of this message? Two th- 2010, number 10, means a time of testing is completed. But- uh-huh, yes, so 2010 means a time of testing is completed. Yeah, you're just walking through numbers here and assigning meanings to them that um, my big question is, 
where are you getting any of this? Number 11 is double one. It means double favor. Double f- uh, I Really, it does? Okay. In ministry, double favor in family, double favor in business, double favor in career, double favor in your wealth. It is time to seize the day. No ma- Carpe diem, dude. Yeah, right on. Yeah. Yeah, that's a biblical teaching, right? There. Carpe diem. Seize the day. Right. <laughs> she is saying a whole lot of nothing. I mean, there's words. This is what we call a lot of heat, no light. No light whatsoever. What's happened? It's time for us to stand and say, let us seize the day. Yeah, so stand, maybe on your desk, you know, in honor of the Dead Poets Society. Stand on your desk and shout out, Carpe Diem, because of the number 11 and then number 10 and and Issachar dudes and things like that. Carpe Diem, seize the day. Yes, yes, yes. <laughs> and they paid her to to preach this, by the way. Yeah, she, she makes an honorarium when she makes appearances and does stuff like this. People have said to me, Amanda, with all of the, the, the earthquakes and the floods and the civil unrest, it must mean that Jesus is coming back. But in Matthew 24, verse 14, it says, Jesus said, and the good news of the gospel of the kingdom will be preached throughout the whole world so that all nations will hear it. And then finally the end will come. And then it says in verse 6, you will hear of wars, rumors of wars, but see that you're not alarmed. Such things must happen but the end won't follow immediately so is this the end no unfortunately no not yet because the yeah God- well i think for you it's the end man because you ain't saying nothing so i think we just need to move on these are the sounds of the emergent postmodern philharmonic orchestra conducted by doug paget As you can tell, this avant-garde orchestra, they've unbuckled themselves from the limited definitions of notes put upon society by the modernist movement. And this is their rendition of a spirit-filled version of um, also Sprock Zarathustra by Strauss. Let's listen in as this builds to its great crescendo here. cutting edge this is so much better than that classical stuff you get on you know the classical music channel that's so limited so precise hopefully your ears aren't bleeding okay so yeah one of my favorite update musics here at fighting for the face so what we're going to be listening to is uh, a segment from the uh, All Things Considered on uh, NPR, National Public Radio, uh, regarding an uh, Omaha, Nebraska property where um, a mosque, a Jewish synagogue, and a Christian, and you have to put the word Christian in uh, quotes there, uh, Christian church are all sharing a religious space, which kind of begs the question, 
what on earth do these three faiths, if you can call them that, uh, have in common? The answer is nothing. I mean, if the guy who is representing Christianity um, actually believed the Bible and what it said, he would never be doing what he's doing, is, is a good way to put it. But uh, let's listen in, and uh, you'll kind of catch the theology along the way. I wanted to get the context, so uh, here we go. It's not a secret that this country is struggling with some important questions around religion right now, especially questions about what faith demands and how much religious diversity this country can tolerate. So you can- What a weird statement. How much religious t- – <laughs> how much – can we tolerate? Hmm. See why this story about the Tri-Faith Initiative in Omaha, Nebraska got our attention. The, the Tri-Faith Initiative. Uh-huh. The initiative is working to create a shared religious space that will eventually bring together a mosque, a church, and a synagogue on a single campus. The synagogue is open now, and the initiative hopes the rest will be open by the year 2018. And I'm joined now by three leaders from the Tri-Faith Initiative. Reverend Eric Elness is a senior minister of the Countryside Community Church. It's a congregation of the United Church of Christ. Reverend Elness, thanks so much for... Yeah, United Church of Christ, might as well just say liberal denomination that denies everything Christian, uh, historically, historically biblical orthodoxy. Speaking with us. Thanks. It's great to be here. Dr. Syed Mohidin is a cardiologist and he's also the president of Omaha's American Muslim Institute. Dr. Mohidin, thank you so much for speaking with us. It's my pleasure. And Rabbi Aria Azriel is senior rabbi of Temple Israel in Omaha. Rabbi, thank you so much for joining us as oh, well. My pleasure. Thank you. And Rabbi, I understand that your congregation actually initiated this project. Can you just tell us briefly how this all came about? Uh, it all came from... Uh meeting one day on uh, Saturday morning uh, with a past president. We were then dreaming and thinking about moving to another location and suggested that uh, maybe we can uh, find other partners to be able to share parking lots. Parking lots. That's definitely something that brings us together, isn't it? Uh, Why not? (laughs) Uh, And so uh, that's how it started. And we already had relationship with the Muslim community in Omaha. From then in 2006... To here in 2015, uh, the dream is becoming reality. You mentioned that you'd worked with the American Muslim Institute before, but I do want to mention that it actually was a very profound gesture that the members of Temple Israel actually went to the American Muslim Institute after 9-11 as a statement of, what would you say, community and support. support. Uh, okay. Knowing what sometimes people are capable of doing and trying to prevent things from happening. That's why we came up with this idea, because uh, difficulty is what creates the meaning of our lives. Dr. Mahidin, what about you? What were you all hoping to accomplish by joining this effort? You know, as Rabbi just said, our initial meeting was to discuss sharing of this space. But we soon realized that really what we are doing is sharing our hopes, dreams, and then we able to learn to live with each other. And Reverend Ellis, what about you? Your congregation voted, right, on whether to join this initiative. What were some of the range of of responses and opinions you heard from your group? Well, you'd think in light of today's climate that the range of opinion, the opposition came from people who were afraid to associate with Muslims, but actually um, most of the people who were opposed were simply opposed because we have a beautiful building that's been there for 65 years, and people didn't want to pick up stakes and move. Uh Uh-huh. So there at the uh, Church of Christ, which doesn't actually preach Christ, uh, the big objection really to, you know, having a shared religious space with Muslims and uh, 
these they aren't orthodox jews i'm you know some kind of modern you know you know liberal judaism um it was that they had a they already had a beautiful building it wasn't like wait a second scripture clearly says you shall have no other gods and uh what communion has light with darkness no we can't do this because uh, there is no other name given by which we must be saved, that and that is Jesus Christ. Yeah, nope, nope, that wasn't the big objection. It's yeah, you know, um, we we like our building, Pastor, and uh, why would we want to, you know, pull up stakes and you know and move to a different building? The one we have is just fantastic, aesthetically pleasing, and things like. Yeah, so. Uh, <laughs> Okay, so apparently over there at the Church of Christ, they aren't making disciples, but uh, let's listen in a little bit more. There's really no good reason at all for Countryside to do this other than the beauty of the vision of the Tri-Faith Initiative, which... The, the beauty of the vision of the Tri-Faith Initiative. Mm-hmm. Where, did, where did that vision come from? It doesn't sound like it came from God really matched our values and our ethos as, as a church that uh, Christian love of Jesus or of God rather includes walking fully in the path of Jesus without denying the legitimacy of other paths that God may create for humanity. Uh-huh. Um, <laughs> I have to play that again. That was just deplorable. Hang on a second. Backing it up. Here we go again. Love of Jesus, or of God, rather, includes walking fully in the path of Jesus without denying the legitimacy of other paths that God may create for humanity. Uh huh. So apparently, um, their ethos there at their uh, Christian church is that, uh, you know, they, they want to fully walk in the way of Jesus, whatever that means. Uh, sounds like words that don't really have much of a meaning uh, without denying the other paths that God can create in other. Yeah. See, that's the thing is that um, God hasn't created another path in other religions. Uh, the commandment, you shall have no other gods still stands and it shows that we're sinners. So those who follow Allah um, in the Muslim faith, um, that's not a path that God has created for salvation for anybody, period. Nobody will be saved through Islam. Buddhism, same thing. Um, Modern-day Judaism, which, by the way, is not the same religion as biblical Judaism. It isn't even close. In fact, modern-day Judaism, uh, you know, it's even the Orthodox stripe, that was a religion created by the Pharisees after the fall of the temple in uh, Jerusalem in 70 AD. And so it is a, you know, modern day Orthodox Judaism is, uh, you know, the modern um, inheritance of, of the, uh, the religion of the Pharisees. It's not biblical. It won't save anybody either. Um, so, um, so here we got a representative, you know, at least in name, you know, a guy who, oh, <laughs> We're followers of Jesus, yeah. But uh, you know, we, we recognize that God can create many different paths in other religions too. And yet, which biblical text would you go to to back up this claim that God is making a way of salvation in other religions? Answer, there isn't a single text in the Scripture that would even hint at that. All religions are false. In fact, look at the book of Acts. All right, just look at the book of Acts and what happens in the book of Acts. You have 
the church being born on the day of Pentecost, and the disciples going out and doing what Jesus told them to do, proclaim repentance and the forgiveness of sins in Jesus' name, making disciples of all nations, baptizing and teaching. And that's what they did. And they went into synagogues and told people that Jesus was the Messiah, and those who believed were considered, they were brought into the Christian church. Those who persisted in unbelief, they were declared as those who did not consider themselves worthy of, of eternal life. And they were never part of Christianity. And Paul warns explicitly those people in the synagogue that he preached to to not harden their hearts and to be obstinate and unbelieving, right? So, um, and then you you have the Apostle Paul going into pagan towns. And in one instance, you know, he heals somebody and they thought that one of the, uh, the uh, Greco-Roman gods had appeared in human flesh. And they were going to offer sacrifices uh, to uh, the Apostle Paul and his companion. And they, had, they tore their clothes and said, no, we're just men like you. And they ended up getting stoned uh, you know, afterwards. But uh, the, the apostles made it clear that uh, those in pagan religions, they were called to repent and come out of those worthless religions that cannot save. Those who were in Judaism at the time were called to believe that Christ the Messiah had come, the one promised, and uh, and they were to be part of the church and, and confessing Christ. And uh, those who persisted in unbelief, um, they weren't considered Christians. Uh, they were considered those who deemed themselves unworthy of life and eternal life. So uh, you can't even make heads or tails of uh, the book of Acts without, you know, based on the theology that this guy's given us. But uh, this guy is not a representative of Christianity at all. Um, he's teaching and preaching something totally different, which means that which makes it possible for him to, uh, you know, walk hand in hand with uh, Muslims and modern day uh, Jews. Listen again. Actually, um, most of the people who were opposed were simply opposed because we have a beautiful building that's been there for 65 years, and people didn't want to pick up stakes and move. There's really no good reason at all for Countryside to do this, other than the beauty of the vision of the Tri Faith Initiative, which really matched our values and our ethos as, as a church that uh, Christian love of Jesus or of God rather includes walking fully in the path of Jesus without denying the legitimacy of other paths that God may create for humanity. And God hasn't created any other paths for humanity at all. There is no other name given by which men must be saved and that is Christ. So that explains that syncretism, and you know this is just uh, idolatry of the worst order, and um, yeah, absolutely blasphemous that any church that calls itself Christian would unite with these other religions and say that these are legitimate paths to God when they're not, rather than call them to repent and to trust in Christ for the forgiveness of their sins, which he won for them on the cross. All right, we're up on our first break. If you'd like to email me regarding anything you've heard on this edition or any previous editions of Fighting for the Faith, you can do so. My email address is talkback at fightingforthefaith.com, or you can subscribe on Facebook, facebook.com forward slash Christian. Follow me on Twitter. My name there, at Christian. Quick break. When we come back, we got a uh, Keith Craft update. We have a Stephen Furtick update. We'll throw in another guy in there, too. Maybe Creflo Dollar, time permitting. Stay tuned. Don't want to miss it. We will be right back. Jesus did not die for your 401k. You're listening to Fighting for the Faith. (laughs) 
You're listening to Pirate Christian Radio. We'll be taking your false doctrine now. <laughs> Already? Right, uh, package for you, ma'am. Just uh, sign there. Oh dear, I was expecting something a bit l- larger. Is that all there is? Afraid uh, so, ma'am. Uh, sorry to disappoint. Oh, <laughs> no worries. I'm sure more will be on the way. Uh, thank you so very much. Uh, have a good day, ma'am. I wonder what's in here. Oh, I do hope I haven't been ordering chia pits in my sleep again. Oh, it's a DVD! Oh, I said better not be another one of those Lectio Divina thingies. Hello! If you are watching this, it means that you have purchased the post-apocalyptic preparedness package. You have bought the... Bronze Edition. Bronze Edition? Please don't be alarmed, as your full order will be arriving within the next few weeks. Next few weeks? The end of the world might have happened by then. I should have paid the extra $99.99 for the faster shipping. The purpose of this DVD is to catalog everything that you will be receiving in the... Bronze Edition. ...package, along with information on our other great offers. Looks like there are different chapters to select from. Let's see here. Toiletries, clothing, nourishment, shelter, sanitation, medicine, gardening, energy, communication, weaponry, underwater basket weaving... Okay, additional accessories, expansion packs, and ooh, play all. (laughs) I'll choose that one. As you know, God has given us signs in the sun, moon, and stars that the end times are approaching. After the destruction of your country, the everyday comforts you currently enjoy will have been disintegrated by God's judgment. By investing in our merchandise, you have proven to God that you have audacious faith in his prophets, seers, and visionaries. Now we're ready to dive into the crucial survival equipment you have purchased. Well, I'm certainly glad that God knows I'm faithful. No doom and gloom for me. You have purchased the... Bronze Edition. Please pay attention to which items you will be receiving. I have my new pad ready. Part 1. Toiletries. In the Bronze Edition, your toilet paper will be made from the finest scratchy banana leaves and corrugated tree bark. Toilet paper made from scratchy banana leaves and... Wait, what? In the Silver Edition... Your toilet paper will be made from all-natural, organic, recycled plastic. In the gold edition, your toilet paper will be made from hand-quilted spider silk. This can't be right! In the bronze edition, you will receive a block of wood with bristles and a baking soda solution for maintaining healthy teeth and gums. Here's a pro tip. You can use your own hair as dental floss. In the silver edition, you will receive... Oh my! I sat on the remote! It's fast-forwarding! Um, uh, where's that darn play button? Oh, oh, wait, there it is! Part 5. Nourishment. In the bronze edition, you will receive 24 cans, each containing one month's supply of beans. 
As a nifty space saver, the cans are first filled with fresh river water, then topped off with dehydrated beans. This way, you'll have your food and water in the same convenient package. Strainers and can openers will not be included. The silver edition will provide dried fruit and vegetable packets along with a 36-month supply of chicken noodle soup and 50 gallons of distilled water. The silver edition will provide dried fruit and vegetable packets along with a 36-month supply of chicken noodle soup and 50 gallons of distilled water. What? How is that even fair? Gold edition buyers will be given 50 crates of freeze-dried astronaut dinners. Flavors include chicken corn on blue, lobster surprise, filet mignon, oysters, caviar, and steak. Cheese platters will be served on the side of every dish. Water will come in glass bottles along with a complimentary water fountain with color-changing LEDs. This is ridiculous! I can't believe I wasted my cat's life insurance on this! What else is in this stupid thing? Gold Edition shelters have been constructed by our teams ahead of time for you. You will be getting your maps and keys to access your top-secret bunker in the coming weeks. Complimentary bouncy castles and jacuzzis can be found next to the theater room behind the bowling alley. In the silver edition, you will get him and her matching gardening gloves. For prosperous crops, this edition includes an inflatable radiation-proof greenhouse. Part 33, communication. Now pay attention, bronze buyers. Using two of your Space Saver nourishment cans, you can attach this six-foot string to each side to make an electricity-free telephone. As a special promotion, we will also be giving out 12-foot strings for long-distance calls. Gold Edition weaponry includes six holy hand grenades, one hideaway moat, and... I can't believe this! They didn't say anything about different editions on the website! How, how do I upgrade? I can't survive with any of the useless junk they're sending me! What are the shams of these sleaze balls running? I could have sworn she said something about expansion packs. Additional accessories, such as a Holy Ghost decoder ring or a church box CD, can be purchased individually for $24.99 each. Please wait for our full accessory list. Ah! I don't want to hear any more of this rubbish! Part 104. Expansion Packs. Our hottest item is the Mr. Sparkle Party Pack. This little number comes with four sparkle suits, one disco ball, seizure-inducing strobe lights, and confetti poppers. It's fun for the whole family. I want my money back. This is an absolute outrage. I can't believe I fell for this ruse. This concludes our DVD presentation. If you have any questions, please call the number not located at the bottom of your screen. And remember that all payments are non-refundable and non-negotiable. Thank you, and have a wonderful apocalypse. This is Dr. Curtis Lyons. I am the presiding pastor of the American Association of Lutheran Churches. If you are seeking a church that believes that the Holy Bible is the inerrant, infallible Word of God and accepts the Lutheran confessions because they are the right interpretation of Holy Scripture, I hope that you will take a look at the AALC. Also, if you are considering a vocation as a Lutheran pastor, our seminary has a residency program and a program available online. This is Curtis Lyons inviting you to take a look at the AALC. 
Check us out at taalc.org or on Facebook at the American Association of Lutheran Churches. Every summer for the past 15 years, youth have been immersed in the waters of their baptism at Higher Things Conferences. On January 2nd, we invite college students and young adults to the campus of Concordia University, Chicago, for an evening spent drinking from the fire hose of the gospel. This unique Higher Things Lutheran Unconference will begin with a service of vespers and end with evening prayer. In between, seven incredible Lutheran pastors will take the stage for just 20 minutes each. A sit-down dinner will be provided with a Q&A session with a speaker panel. Registration is just $100 per person. Go to higherthings.org for more information. That's higherthings.org. Morning. Listening to Fighting for the Faith might cause you to think that, well, other religions don't actually lead to eternal life. They lead to God, the day of judgment, but just not eternal life. Just a reminder, Fighting for the Faith is listener-supported radio. That means we depend upon you and your generous gifts and financial contributions in order to continue to bring Fighting for the Faith to you into the world, and you can partner with us. It's a partnership. Visit our website, fightingforthefaith.com. When you get there, you'll see our two friendly yellow buttons. One says donate. The other says join our crew. When you join our crew, you get to pick your rank. You're making a commitment uh, to donate a particular amount of money every month, and you can pick your rank. Uh, lowest rank is Powder Monkey at nine ninety five a month. Uh, then Gunners made at twenty four ninety five, Master Gunner forty nine ninety five a month, and Quartermaster at ninety nine ninety five a month. And we are currently looking for the equivalent of six hundred new Powder Monkeys since we've launched the new website. And uh, once we we get to six hundred new Powder Monkeys, we will be able to afford to bring some new people on board to uh, help roll out phase two of the uh, the brand new website and continue to expand the offering that we have there at uh, piratechristian.com uh, to uh, to serve the body of Christ and to help proclaim the gospel, make disciples of all nations, proclaim repentance and the forgiveness of sins, and uh, open people's eyes to the errors and the uh, deceivers out there that have overrun the church. So uh, again, visit our website, fightingforthefaith.com, click on Join Our Crew and pick your rank and uh, join us today. Of course, if you'd like to specify the amount that you would like to contribute, you could do so by clicking on the Donate button, or you can make your gift payable to Fighting for the Faith and then send it to Post Office Box 13344, Grand Forks, North Dakota, zip code 58208. And let me thank you for your support. We truly cannot do what we're doing here without it. Moving along. These are the sounds of the Mariachi Trench. Yeah, the Mariachi Trench is the invention of Keith Kraft of Elevate Life Church over at the Cathedral of Frisco in Frisco, Texas. We're going to be listening to, we're going to be going back, in fact, in time to re-listen to a portion of a message that Keith Kraft delivered at the beginning of 2015 where he claimed that he received a a word from God, a specific word that was going to be the word for the uh, people of Elevate Life Church. 
and uh, and its implications. And so, let me go. <laughs> you kind of get the idea. Let me back off on the music. And without any further ado, here's Keith Kraft and uh, his State of the Church address uh, delivered at the, the first Sunday of um, of the year 2015. Here we go. It's an honor to have you with us today. And in case you weren't here December 31st, we announced that our word for 2015 is empower. Yeah, now when he says we announced that our word, what he means by that is apparently on December 31st, uh, the presence of the Lord in the Shekinah glory fell on um, the Cathedral of Frisco and uh, and God spoke from the Shekinah glory and said, Oh, thus saith me, saith the Lord, the word that is for the Cathedral of Frisco for the year 2015 is the word empower. Yeah, and it makes you wonder, well, why didn't God show up at, you know, Kongsvinger, you know, the, the congregation that I serve out there in uh, in Minnesota, and give us a word, you know? I mean, we, we, we're kind of feeling neglected by God here, you know? Um, well, actually, we're not, because here's the thing. Nowhere in Scripture are we led to believe that at the beginning of a calendar year that individual congregations would be given specific words from God that would somehow frame you know, what it is they're supposed to be doing, uh, you know, in, in that upcoming calendar year. Um, instead, the idea is this, is that men like Keith Kraft, men like Stephen Furtick, who you're going to hear doing this, um, remember, they're vision-casting leaders, and uh, and they're the ones claiming that they received a direct revelation, a vision from God, you know, for their specific uh, big box multi-site mega churches, and uh, and so this idea that they receive direct revelation from God, and that there's supposedly you know words and and thing uh, phrases or things that are revealed to the vision casting leader at the beginning of a church of a beginning of a calendar year, all that does is kind of keep going the misperception that these men are actually hearing directly from God. It's all part of the sham. It's all part of the deception. But if you listen carefully to what Keith Kraft is going to say here, he ain't going to say nothing. I mean, th- I mean, if this is really what God wants us to hear, I mean, if God is you know not engaged in any kind of lucid or profound speech at all. I mean, this is just nonsense. So listen in some more. God is going to empower us in a way like we've never known. And I'm going to break that down over the next few weeks. We're going to talk about that and what that means. But just right out of the gate, uh, let me just give you the definition for empower. It means divine enablement. Yeah, no, actually, that is not what the definition, the dictionary definition of the word empower is. He's deceiving people. To achieve your divine destiny. Yeah, the word empower does not mean divine enablement to achieve your divine destiny. Um, There is no dictionary on the planet that has that as the definition of the word empower. He's engaging in deception, creating the false impression that he's receiving direct revelation from God. You see, we're not going to get the power. We've already got the power. God's just going to enable us to take the power he's already given us so that what he wants to happen in 2015 is going to happen in Jesus' name. Today we brought out the big pulpit because God's going to do big things this year. Come on. He's going to do big things this 
year. So well, here we are at the uh, end of 2015, just about. And uh, you know, this question I would have for the people over the Cathedral of Cri- uh, you know Crisco. Yeah, so, sorry, I've got like pumpkin pie and stuff on my brain here. Yeah, we're getting close to Christmas. Uh, okay, so <laughs> let me try this again. At the Cathedral of Frisco, Frisco, Texas. Yeah, um, is um, how'd that work out for you? Were, were, the, were there big things? And I'm sure there's some people there at the Cathedral of Crisco. That, yeah, I did that on purpose. They, they, they'll sit there, oh, this was the biggest, greatest year ever. And then there's going to be some people who are going to say, yeah, you know, um, this was the worst year that we had. I mean, there's going to be people who um, they've lost loved ones, you know, to cancer at the Cathedral of Frisco. There's going to be some who've, you know, major tragedy, man, you know, marriages have blown apart. Uh, maybe somebody has lost his job um, or was demoted. Um, you know, there's going to be all kinds of setbacks for a particular portion of people there at the Cathedral of Frisco. Uh, while at the same time, there's going to be a small portion, uh, you know, that's proportionate to like how the rest of the population works there at the Cathedral of Frisco, where you know things worked out well for them this year. You know, maybe they got a raise, uh, you know, maybe they got married, you know, maybe they, you know, they had their third child, um, uh, you know, maybe they got into a house, you know, things like that. And 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 for all intents and purposes, 2015 was a great year. But there's a whole lot of people out there at the Cathedral of Frisco where uh, 2015 wasn't a good year. And so they were told at the beginning of the year that, uh, hey, their, their big word is empowerment. God's going to empower you to achieve your divine destiny, um, which the Bible nowhere teaches this divine destiny thingy doctrine. This is a different message of Christianity. Let's listen in a little bit more. Honored to have you today. Thank you for being with us. And again, thank you for watching on television. I want to read you a scripture out of Ephesians, the first chapter, the 18th through the 23rd verse. And I want to really exegete this scripture. Now, what that means is we're going to go line upon line. And, you know, when God gives us a word, we really believe that word is going to happen. But we have to understand that word. Let me just tell you a quick, funny story. You know, uh, Josh, my son, in whom I'm well pleased, when he was, I don't know, probably eight or nine, he came home from school and he said, Hey, Dad, somebody called me a jerk today. He's got a big old smile on his face, and I'm looking at him. I'm kind of trying to get his cues, and I said, well, is that a good thing? He goes, well, of course it is. You know what a jerk is, don't you? I go, well, I thought I did. He said it means junior educated rich kid. That's exactly what I am. Can I just tell you that when God gives us a word, sometimes we're not able to mature the word because we don't understand what the word means. Okay, so God, when sometimes when God gives you a word, yeah. It's weird. I, you know, grew up in the church, you know. I, <laughs> and, um, hmm, um, at least junior high, high school. And, uh, in, you know, I, I've spent decades in the church. And have never once received a specific word, word, singular word, uh, from God at the beginning of a year. Um, so, you know, here he's talking like it's just like, everybody gets these, you know. You know, we we got one here this year and, you know, everybody else around, you know, they're all getting theirs too. No, you know, I, I, I've spent decades in the church and never once had a word from God uh, given at the beginning of the year. But let me tell you what God says about his word. He said his word is even above his name. 
yeah. You're assuming here that the word that you were given in power is actually from God. To understand that, that we speak the word in the name of Jesus, that Jesus was the word and he came and he dwelt among us and he gave us the. Yeah, no, no. Jesus wasn't the, you know, it, it, no, it's incorrect to say Jesus was the word. Um, Jesus is the word. The word was with God and the word, you know, and the word is God. Yeah, yeah. Yeah, uh, we got a problem here. When we speak that word and then we speak it in the name of Jesus, in Jesus' name, it comes to pass. Uh, so, you know, when we get that word, you know, whatever the word is, and then we speak that word in the name of Jesus, well, then it comes to pass. Where'd you find that in the Bible? Keith, I'm a little confused as to where the scriptures teach this doctrine. So the word he's given us is in power. Let's look at Ephesians, the first chapter, 18th verse. The big Bible in the sky is there. I pray, Paul said, to the largest church that there had ever been in the history of the world at that time, the church of Ephesus, that your hearts would be flooded with light. Everybody say light. I'm praying that your hearts will be flooded with light so that you can understand the confident hope he has given to those he called. I want to stop right here and again, just say he's, he's praying this prayer. He's saying, I'm praying that your hearts will be flooded with light. I want you to take your notes. And if you don't have notes, the ushers have them and they'll give them to you. They'll also give you a Mont Blanc pen. It says Bic on it, and you're welcome to keep that pen. But I want to talk about four no's. We are divinely enabled by God. In other words, this will be no's, K-N-O-W-S, not N-O-S. There are four things that we got to know as we go into this year, 2015, that we truly are being divinely enabled by God. And here's the first no. Take a look at your notes. Know that you are enabled by light so that you can conceive the inconceivable. <laughs> yeah, we, I've heard other guys use that phrase and it's still just quacky. Yeah, you know, I'm, I'm, Jesus is going to help me conceive the inconceivable. Yeah, all right. Know that you are enabled by light to conceive the inconceivable. Now, let's Yeah, that's not what Paul was talking about there in the opening chapter of Ephesians. Back to the word of God. I pray that your hearts would be flooded. God, I'm just asking you right now that you would put your flood light on every person, on every family, on every business, on every situation. God, no matter what the past has been, you're doing a new thing. And God, in 2015, we are going to be divinely enabled to achieve the destiny that you have for us this year. Come on, put a big amen on that. So, uh, yeah, it's, it's, you're going to be enabled to achieve the destiny. I mean, it's not going to discover it. you got to. I hope they they all achieve their destinies, you know. Yeah, Marty McFly style. You know, you're my density. Okay, uh, this is, like I said, weird. In other words, we've got to know that we are enabled by light. Why? Paul says, so we can understand. Hey, let me stop right here and just confess something to you. I know you know this if you've been to this church before, and if you don't, 
Let me just announce to you, I am not the sharpest knife in the drawer. Don't say amen too loud. Yeah, I would agree with that. But guess what? I have the wisdom of God. And the Bible says, if you lack wisdom, ask God and he'll give it to you. And you don't have to be the sharpest knife in the drawer to be able to differentiate between good and best. That's good. That's best. You don't have to be the sharpest knife in the drawer to take whatever knowledge that you have and just apply it to your life. That's wisdom. So I claim to have wisdom. And let me just in this wisdom moment, tell you what Paul is saying here. I'm praying that you will be flooded with light so that you can understand. Understand is the etymology of the word understand. This goes really deep, so stay with me. It's two words. Understand. Okay, you got that? Say, I got that. He said, I'm praying that you'll be flooded with light so that you can Understand, so that you can put under your standing. (laughs) What? See, the reason we need to know certain things this year about what God is enabling us to do is so that we can put it under our standing. And Put it under our standing so that you can conceive the inconceivable, right? Yeah. We're not standing on our insecurity. That we're not standing on our immaturity. That we're not standing on our fear. That we're not standing on our limited experience. That we're not standing on our ethnicity or our Americanism or being rich or poor. He said, I'm praying that you'll be flooded with the light of God so that you can put under your standing. Watch this now. Here's what he says. The confident hope that he has given to those he called. Wow. Not just a hope, but a confident hope. Yeah, that would be referring to the hope of our salvation and the coming kingdom of God visibly here on the earth. Yeah. So I want you to take a look at your notes. What is it that we need to know to be enabled to achieve our divine destiny? Number one, we need to know that we are enabled by light so that we can conceive the inconceivable. And I'm going to come back. Yeah, again, Ephesians is not saying that. But here's the second thing in your notes. We need to know that we are enabled to have a confident hope. God is going to enable you this year with a confident hope. Not just hope based on what you see or don't see, but a Godfident hope. Because his floodlight is going to shine upon... A, a Godfident hope, right. A Godfident hope to do what exactly? And you're going to put under your standing this... Con- <laughs> put under your standing. Oh, man. Okay, this, maybe this is the problem is, is uh, American uh, public schools here. And hope, why? So that we can believe the unbelievable. <laughs> what on earth? We, yeah, yeah, that's what Paul was talking about. You know, a confident understanding so we can conceive the inconceivable, believe the unbelievable. Maybe we can do the undoable. I, you know, I this is just... Gobbledygook. Now, so you get you kind of get the idea. Now, 
this is a growing trend in evangelicalism where you have these vision casting leaders, you know, at the beginning of the year claiming to have received direct revelation from God that reveals the thing that they're to be about, you know, in the, uh, in the coming year. And, uh, yeah, Keith Kraft is one of these guys, but there's another one who does the exact same thing. And, uh, that would be Stephen Furtick. Let's switch gears and take a listen to his, uh, you know, speech that he gave at the beginning of 2015, end of 2014, but in order to do that, we got to do this. You walked up to the pulpit like you were a man of God. You had strategic. The beaver was fake and hot You had one eye on the camera As you watched the crowd applaud All of the pastors dreamed you'd be their mentor You'd be their mentor And you're so vain You probably think the Bible's about you You're so vain you think the battle's about you, don't you, don't you? Who me several years ago when I was just a baby sheep? Well, you told me we were made to serve and my time was all you'd need. But you Heard the real gospel and you're so vain. You'll probably think the Bible's about you. You're so vain. I bet you think the Bible's about you. Don't you? Don't you? All right, going back in time again. It's roughly the same time as when Keith Kraft delivered his thing regarding the word that the Lord had given them. And apparently, you know, the Lord also speaks to the heart of, you know, Stephen Furtick. And uh, so he's going to narsegeet a passage from the book of Genesis and then whip the people up at elevation there telling them that, you know, hey, he's got some, you know, this is the year, the year of something. But I'll have him explain it. Let me back off on the music. And uh, you'll notice that we covered some of this at the beginning of the year, but I think it's important to recover it so that you are familiar with the technique so that when we begin the year off and we cover uh, what these guys are doing, uh, you'll have at least a framework for doing that. So without any further ado, here's Stephen Furtick from his uh, Christmas, New Year's Eve, New Year's Day message that they uh, they did there at Elevation Church as they watched the year go from 2014 to 2015, and Stephen Furtick announcing what God is apparently doing there for the folks at Elevation Church, similar to what we heard Keith Kraft do. Here we go. I want to preach to you now, if that would be okay. 
you're stuck here until next year. You may as well give your attention to the Word of God. I want to share with you a scripture that I've been holding on to for several months. Something that's been so exciting in me. I've, I've been exploding internally since the last time I saw you on Christmas Eve. And I want to share with you a word. Last year's New Year's Eve sermon stayed on my mirror. The scripture that the Lord gave me stayed on my mirror all year until today. And what God put in my heart for us, I believe it'll carry through the whole year. What God put in my heart for us, claiming direct revelation for the uh, congregation there. I believe it will, and I believe it'll set a great direction for your attitude in this coming year. But I, I covered up the old scriptures with the new ones because this is something that, well, on the surface, you might not see it. But if you give me a few minutes to work it out, I want to preach to you from Genesis 26. I read a couple. Genesis 26. Okay. Just for you, but I have one particular thought. It's the story of Isaac and the well and Abimelech. Okay. That I want to drill down on tonight. And we welcome all of our locations. Man, it's so great to be linked up all over the city. Welcome those of you watching online. Welcome those of you on Trinity Broadcasting Network. Watching. Well, there is the problem right there. Yeah. <laughs> He's a TBN preacher now. On television, Genesis chapter 26, verses 12 through 18. I'm going to read it without context, and then I'll backfill the context in a moment. The scripture says that Isaac planted crops in that land, and the same year reaped a hundredfold because the Lord had blessed him. Now, if anything good happened to you in your life this year, I want you to know the cause of it was right there in verse 12. I don't know if you missed part B. It said he, he reaped a hundredfold because the Lord blessed him. If you had all your needs met this year, if you didn't lose your mind this year, if you didn't have a nervous breakdown this year, or if you did and then you got back together, if you still got your family. What if you did and you didn't get yourself back together? around you this year there's only one reason don't get it twisted what if you your family isn't around you this year what what if you're in the middle of a divorce it's because the lord bless you that's why we came to church at the end of the year because we want to thank the one who got us to this point you have to bring it down a notch that's only the first verse and i'm reading all the way to 18 tell somebody next to you what had happened was so notice he's narcissating. You know, he reads the text and then talks about them. Reads the text. Apparently, the texts are all about them. Yeah, weird. The Lord bless you. That's 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 why you're here. Not smart enough to make it this far. You're not cute enough to make it this far. You're not sufficient in and of yourself to make it this far. But if the blessing of God is on you, it'll carry you through some tough times and some dark days. Verse 13, the man became rich and his wealth continued to grow until he became very wealthy. I hope you don't think that God's riches just simply revolve around worldly wealth. Because the scripture says that, that he'll make you rich and he'll add no sorrow to it. So he'll make you rich in ways where you'll have everything that you need, not just on the outside, but on the inside. We want to be rich in love, joy, peace, patience, kindness, goodness, faithfulness, gentleness, self-control. And he got so blessed. Look at verse 14. 
He had so many flocks and herds and servants that the Philistines envied him. So all the wells that his father's servants had dug in the time of his father Abraham, the Philistines stopped up, filling them with the earth. Then Abimelech said to Isaac, move away from us. You have become too powerful for us. So Isaac moved away from there and encamped in the valley of Gerar where he settled. Verse 18 is my focal point. Isaac reopened the wells that had been dug in the time of his father Abraham, which the Philistines had stopped up after Abraham died, and he gave them the same names his father had given them. I don't so much have a sermon title for this occasion as I have an announcement. So I need you to turn to your neighbor and make the announcement for me because I can't get around the whole church. I wish I could. But at every location, turn to your neighbor and tell them, neighbor, in 2015... You're going to find your flow. Uh, um, So because you've read um, (laughs) the story of the wells being unstopped and apparently the water flowing again in these wells, that that means in the year 2015, the people of Elevation Church are going to find their flow, you know, which kind of begs the question, what does that even mean? I I found my flow. Uh, yeah, I I I don't know. I mean, what is like? That's like saying I found my groove. You know, hey, I found my groove. Wow, well, oh, yeah. And in, in 2015, you know, it's the year of the groove. Yeah. Um, it doesn't make any. He's not saying anything, and the people there think this is somehow profound, and it's not profound at all. It's it's actually quite vacuous and um and well void of any substantial meaning yet alone biblical meaning. There's nothing biblical about this. Do you think the reason why God the Holy Spirit had Genesis chapter 26 penned is so that in the year 2015, the people at Elevation Church could find their flow? Is that really the meaning of uh, that text? Yeah, that's the announcement. <laughs> How you like that? Yeah, I don't like it at all. I think it's quite, well, awful. I think you're manipulating these people. That's what God brought you here to tell you. In tw- really, God brought the people there to hear this? I don't think so. 15. Now find 14 other people and tell them you're going to find your flow. You're going to find your flow. Come on. Tell them you're going to find You're going to find your flow. You're going to find your flow. You're going to find your flow. This year. Come on. We're flowing into 15. 2015 is the year of flow. Yeah, that would be flow from the uh, the progressive insurance commercials. Yeah. So you kind of get the idea. I mean, what what are we dealing with here? What we're dealing with is a technique of manipulation. And he's not saying anything, but he is claiming that he's receiving something from God. It creates the false impression that he's somehow in tuned directly with the will of God and can hear it and then you know it receive that vision in casting this is a form of vision casting going on so God is casting through Stephen Furtick at least how the claim goes uh, you know a vision for the year 2015 so he's going to recast vision as they go into 2016 and it doesn't matter what word he comes up with it, you know this is the year of flow that was 2015. Uh, this is the year of superabundance. This is the year of super chicken. I, I you know, whatever. Um, you know, none of this is actually real. None of this is, has anything to do with God. 
has nothing to do with what God is communicating or speaking. Nowhere in Scripture are we led to believe that, you know, at the beginning of each calendar year, God's going to give through his vision-casting leaders, you know, a, a vision for the upcoming 12 months. I mean, this is all part of the smoke and mirrors designed to create the false impression that guys like this are really in tune with God and we need to get behind them because uh, they're hearing directly from the Lord. And you'll notice that that's completely different than what Scripture teaches, that uh, pastors are to preach the written word. And Stephen Furtick, he's narsegeting and claiming prophetic revelation. And uh, he's a Bible twister and a wolf on all levels not one that anybody should be exposing themselves to because he's not preaching the truth. He's not pointing to the Christ and him crucified for their sins, calling them to repent and to be forgiven. He's telling them, oh, God has revealed into my heart that this is the year of, you know, flow. You know, I don't know what that means, but hey, you know. And how do you apply that? You know, you leave the, you know, leave the auditorium that night and you go home. Oh, this is so exciting. This is the year of flow. I I don't know what that means, you know. Yeah, you know, go ahead and apply that if you would to your life. Yeah, I'm gonna go apply the flow thingy to my. Yeah, you know. Yeah, you got nothing because he didn't say anything, and that's the point. All right, we are up on our second break. We're gonna have to save our Creflo Dollar segment until next week. If you'd like to email me regarding anything you've heard. On this edition or any previous editions of Fighting for the Faith, you can do so. My email address is talkback at fightingforthefaith.com, or you can subscribe on Facebook, facebook.com forward slash Christian. Follow me on Twitter, my name there, at Christian. Quick break, when we come back, we're going to end the week off with a couple of sermons that I've recently delivered for the season of Advent uh, over at Kongsvinger. Stay tuned, don't want to miss it. We'll be right back. Sissioprified religiosity won't save you. You're listening to Fighting for the Faith. High Ridge Christian Radio Theater presents Death of a Salesman. Are ye a salesman? Why, yes, I am. Can I interest you in some... <laughs> You're listening to Byron Christian Radio. Hi, Chris Rosebro here to talk about our longtime featured advertiser, Cheapo Air. Doesn't matter if you're traveling for business reasons or for pleasure. Doesn't matter if you're traveling within the United States or abroad. Cheapo Air is the place for you to save literally hundreds of dollars on your airfare, hotel rooms, and rental cars. Visit our website, fightingforthefaith.com. On the side of our website, you'll see our ad banners. Look at the ad banner for Cheapo Air and look on it. There's a promo code. Write the promo code down. Click on the ad banner and then book your travel at the Cheapo Air website and you'll have the opportunity to enter that promo code for additional savings. Again, fightingforthefaith.com. Write down the promo code, click on the ad banner, and save money on your airfare, hotel rooms, and rental cars today. On 
January 2nd, college students and young adults are invited to Concordia University, Chicago for an evening drinking from the fire hose of the gospel. This Higher Things Lutheran Unconference starts and ends with worship. In between, seven incredible Lutheran pastors will speak for just 20 minutes each. Dinner will be provided with a Q&A session. Registration is just $100 per person. For more information, go to higherthings.org. Hour number two of Fighting for the Faith. We're, uh, like, well into it here. Going to end the week off with a couple of sermons. Since I preached them, I, I don't get to have an opinion on them. At least... One that I'll express with my words, but this will be cheating a little bit here. Here we go. Ugly. We review it all here at Fighting for the Faith. We're an equal opportunity sermon reviewing service. Today's sermons come to us via Kongsvinger Lutheran Church, Oslo, Minnesota. Pastor Chris Rosebro presiding. We'll be listening to two of Pastor Rosebro's sermons. And keep in mind, the pastor and the pirate are two different vocations. First sermon we'll be listening to is entitled, The King Who Comes in the Name of the Lord. It's an Advent sermon from the first Sunday of Advent. Preached on the Gospel of Luke, chapter 19, verses 28 through 40. The second sermon is from the second Sunday of Advent. It's called, The Lion of Judah is on the Move. And it is taken from the Gospel of Luke, chapter 1, uh, chapter, sorry, chapter 3, verses 1 through 14. So that will be our sermons to end the week off. Let me go ahead and back off on the music. I will be, you'll hear in the recording, I will be reading the, uh, the texts for the uh, sermons So without any further ado, here is our first sermon entitled, The King Who Comes in the Name of the Lord. Here we go. The Holy Gospel according to St. Luke, chapter 19, verses 28 through 40. After Jesus had said this, he went on ahead, going up to Jerusalem. As he approached Bethpage and Bethany at the hill called the Mount of Olives, he sent two of his disciples, saying to them, Go to the village ahead of you. As you enter it, you will find a colt tied there, which no one has ever ridden. Untie it, bring it here. If anyone asks, why are you untying it? Tell him, the Lord needs it. Those who were sent ahead went and found it just as he had told them. As they were untying the colt, its owners asked them, why are you untying the colt? They replied, the Lord needs it. They brought it to Jesus, threw their cloaks on the colt, and put Jesus on it. And as he went along, people spread their cloaks on the road. And when he came near the place where the road goes down the Mount of Olives, the whole crowd of disciples began joyfully to praise God in loud voices for all the miracles that they had seen. Blessed is the King who comes in the name of the Lord. Peace in heaven and glory in the highest. Some of the Pharisees in the crowd said to Jesus, Teacher, rebuke your disciples. I tell you, he replied, if they keep quiet, The stones will cry out. In the name of Jesus. 
So in our gospel reading today, you might recognize this as our Palm Sunday text. Kind of a strange way to start off a new church year. By the way, Happy New Year. Yeah, today is the first Sunday of the new church year. This is kind of like the Chinese New Year. No one understands how that all works. It just happens. So today is the beginning of our new church year, so a Happy New Year. And today's gospel text We are anticipating the arrival of our king. This is Advent is the season where we're anticipating the arrival of Christ. And you can kind of put it this way. As Christians, we are in perpetual Advent as we wait for Christ's second Advent in between his first coming and his second coming. And so as we read in the previous weeks where Jesus said, stay awake, I come quickly. He does indeed come quickly. We just don't know when. To us, it seems like a long time. But God's never late. Jesus is never late. And so we're constantly in anticipation of his arrival. And so Advent prepares us for Christmas, and Christmas prepares us for Easter, and Easter prepares us for the end of the world, and so the cycle continues. And so with our text today, it is a fulfillment of the prophecy found in Zechariah chapter 9, verse 9. Let me read it. Rejoice greatly, O daughter of Zion. Shout aloud, O daughter of Jerusalem. Behold, your, come is king, your king is coming to you, righteous and having salvation. He is humble and mounted on a donkey, on a colt, the foal of a donkey. Jesus apparently didn't come to flex political muscle. Notice that kings normally ride in on war horses, right? Jesus comes in on a borrowed donkey. And I mean that, borrowed. We'll talk about this as we work through the text. I mean... Those of you who have experienced daughters old enough to date, if a boy came to your door and asked to take your daughter out on a date and he was in a borrowed car, yeah, I'm just saying, okay? Just you, I don't even need to fill in the blank. We all know kind of that feeling we'd have inside. Is this really the right guy? Well, notice Jesus doesn't come in riding on his own war stallion. He comes in on a borrowed donkey. So we'll talk about that. Let's return to the text, and I'll be reading from my translation. Here's what it says. When he said these things, he was going ahead, ascending to Jerusalem. And it came about, as he drew near to Bethphage and Bethany, to the mount that is called of Olives, he sent two of the disciples, saying, Go into the opposite village in which... As you are entering, you will find a colt tied, upon which no one ever of mankind has ever sat. Untie it and bring it. I like the idioms of the old world. Upon which no one of mankind has ever sat, Jesus officially said, right? So if anyone questions you, here we've got this dubious thing. So you want us to do what? I want you to go over to that village over there. What do you want us to do, Jesus? Uh, Okay, there's a colt there. Just untie it and bring it to me. Okay, that's called theft. Okay, <laughs> right? You know, back in the day, I used to live in a place called Horse Thief Canyon. And there was this big oak tree in Horse Thief Canyon. And it had died decades before we had ever arrived there. But as the story goes, Horse Thief Canyon was named as a result of the horse thieves who were caught and then hung on that tree. Now, I don't know if back in the day the cowboys in Jerusalem would, uh, you know, get a posse together and go hunt down a cult stealer, but you, you kind of get the idea. This is a little bit on the dicey side. And so, if anyone questions you, Jesus said, 
for what reason you are untying it, thus you shall say, the Lord has need of it. The Lord, what? Since when does the Lord have need? Think about this for a second. Scripture says that God owns the cattle on a thousand hills. I think he does. Jesus doesn't come to us in riches. He comes to us in poverty. And he comes, his great triumphal entry into Jerusalem, not as a triumphal king, but as a beggar. One who has need. He's humble, having salvation, riding on a colt, the foal of a donkey. So the Lord has need of it. So those who were sent went and found it just as Jesus had told them. And as they were untying the colt, the owners, plural, said to them, Why are you untying the colt? And then we all say, Awkward. <laughs> right? <laughs> and I, I almost imagine they say it like this, The Lord has need of it? <laughs> Yeah, because it's such a silly sentence, right? The Lord has need of it? Oh, okay, that's fine. <laughs> right? So they led it to Jesus, and then throwing their garments on the colt, and they set Jesus on it. And then while they were proceeding, they were spreading beneath him their cloaks in the road. Now, this is an interesting thing. Hematia in the Greek, it could be cloaks, it could be clothes. We have people literally undressing to some degree or another in order to spread before the king, the humble king. He's not coming in on a red carpet. He's coming in on smelly laundry, right? Yeah, I mean, this is, this is his great triumphal entry, all right? So they're spreading their, their clothes beneath them. They're disrobing in some sense. And as he was drawing near, now to the descent of the Mount of Olives, the whole multitude of the disciples. Keep this in mind. It doesn't say the whole multitude. It says the whole multitude of the disciples. Began to praise God in a loud voice, rejoicing for all the miracles they had seen. Now to kind of paint the, the picture of just how underwhelming this is. In Acts chapter 1, verse 15, we have the total number of believers in Christ, post-death and resurrection of Jesus. Are you ready for the whopping number? 120. That's it. So here we've got the beggar king on a borrowed colt coming in with a multitude of a group of people. Well, if you think about it, not much bigger than a Kongsvinger funeral. In fact, I've been to Kongsvinger funerals where there have been more people than 120. Jesus was not a multi-site megachurch pastor. He did not command the attentions of tens of thousands. In fact, when we read about Jesus basically taking loaves and fishes and feeding a multitude of 5,000 men, John chapter 6 makes it clear after that he got into such a dispute and started saying such harsh words, harsh words like, unless you eat my flesh and drink my blood, you have no life in you, that most of the people who thought that Jesus was the bee's knees decided, yeah, this guy's saying some tough things. I don't think we can believe this. So at the end of the day, the final tally for Jesus, 120. 
That's not impressive, is it? By all of the world's standards, Jesus is a total flop, complete washout, complete and utter failure. He doesn't own a private jet, has to borrow a colt. I mean, what kind of loser are we following? But see, that's the thing. Jesus didn't come to flex political muscles and be, well, successful by the world standard. He didn't come to call the beautiful. He, called the, he came to save sinners. And Philippians 2 makes it clear that this is all part of Christ's humbling. He humbled himself and was found in the form of a servant and became obedient. Obedient even to death on the cross. You think this is scandalous? The cross is even more scandalous. Because there's Jesus. And according to the Mosaic Covenant, cursed is everyone who is hung on a tree. Cursed. And there's Jesus. Nailed to a tree. By their standards and the world's standards, this man has nothing to offer you. You shouldn't even be listening to him. He is a despised criminal. He's cursed of God. Indeed, truly he was. But see, there's kind of the issue. He was cursed for me. He was cursed for you. Scripture says in Isaiah that he was pierced for our transgressions. He was bruised for our iniquities. The punishment, the chastisement that gives us peace with God was upon him. Or as Paul writes, God made him to be sin who knew no sin, that you might be the righteousness of God. There's Jesus on his way to the cross in a very unimpressive, well, multitude. And you have to put it in quotes. On a borrowed donkey, humble, having salvation. So they began to praise God in a loud voice, rejoicing for all the miracles that they had seen, saying, and here's what the disciples said, blessed is the king. Despite the meanness and poverty of this whole situation, they are proclaiming that Jesus is the son of David, that he's the king. Blessed is the king who comes in the name of the Lord. And we'll talk about that. Remember that phrase, in the name of the Lord, in the name of the Lord, right? In the name of the Lord, in heaven, peace and glory in the highest. Oh, but the Pharisees were on the scene. Oh, those Pharisees. Yeah, they're all about money. They're all about fame. They're all about wealth. They're all about power. They're all about themselves. And they're not about to, well, let this sad and pathetic rejoicing in Jesus go unchallenged because they knew what the prophecy of Zechariah said. And they knew that what Jesus and his disciples were doing were fulfilling Zechariah chapter 9.9. And the Pharisees had already made it very clear. Yeah, we get that you're performing miracles, but we refuse to believe that you're doing this by the hand of God. Instead, we think you're doing this because you're doing this in the power of Beelzebub. They knew that Jesus was fulfilling all of the prophecies of the Messiah, and they said, not that Messiah. We need one who's helpful, who's relevant, who can help meet our needs, get rid of these pesky Romans, and help us restore the glory of Israel. Not that Jesus. And so here's what they say to him. The Pharisees from the crowd said to Jesus, Teacher, rebuke your disciples. Shut them up. 
They're embarrassing us. We refuse to believe that this is really the Messiah. Make them be quiet. Jesus' reply is, I say to you, if these will not, if these will be silent, the stones will cry out. And I don't think Jesus was talking metaphorically here. I think that's really what would have happened. And what's funny is, is that this story of the embarrassment and the rebuking of the Pharisees is kind of hidden in type and shadow in another text of the Bible found in 2 Samuel chapter 6. The story of the return of the Ark of the Covenant to Jerusalem when David is king. Here's what it says. When, Obed, when David went and brought the Ark of God from the house of Obed-Edom to the city of David with rejoicing, and when those who bore the Ark of the Lord had gone six steps, he sacrificed an ox and a fatted animal, and David danced before the Lord with all of his might, and David was wearing a linen ephod. He'd somewhat disrobed, taken some of his clothes off. We have kind of a similar idea going on here. So David and all the house of Israel brought up the ark of the Lord with shouting and with the sound of the horn. And by the way, what's the lid of the ark called, by the way? Do you all remember? Called the mercy seat. It is the mercy seat on which the blood of the Day of Atonement, the sacrificial animal, is poured out onto the mercy seat, pointing us to Christ. So Jesus is entering Jerusalem, this time hidden in a box. He would. So as the ark of the Lord came to the city of David, Michal, the daughter of Saul, who, by the way, is the, the bride of David, she looked out of the window and saw King David leaping and dancing before the Lord, and she despised him in her heart. And they brought the ark of the Lord and set it in its place inside the tent that David had pitched for it. And David offered burnt offerings and peace offerings before the Lord. And when David had finished offering the burnt offerings and the peace offerings, he blessed the people in the name of the Lord of hosts and distributed among all the people the whole multitude of Israel, both men and women, a cake of bread, a portion of meat, a cake of raisins to each one. And then all the people departed, each to his house. And David returned to bless his household. And then you can hear the very serious, somber music in the background. Dun, dun, dun. But Michal, the daughter of Saul, came out to meet David and said, How the king of Israel honored himself today, uncovering himself today before the eyes of his servants, female servants, as one of the vulgar fellows shamelessly uncovers himself. Fascinating. How this all works. So David said to Michal, It was before the Lord who chose me above your father and above all his house to appoint me as prince over Israel, the people of the Lord. I will celebrate before the Lord. In fact, I will make myself yet even more contemptible than this, and I will be abased in your eyes. But by the female servants of whom you have spoken, by them I shall be held in honor. So notice, in this story, the despised, lowly maidservants get it. One who have poverty, get it. And David is honored in their eyes for his rejoicing and praising of the Lord in the return of the mercy seat to Jerusalem. But Michal, the princess, the rich, the powerful, the self-absorbed, I'm sure her tiara was wonderful to look at. 
She was embarrassed by all of this, showing that she had no faith. She didn't trust in the Lord. She trusted in herself. She trusted in her power. She trusted in her riches. And so she was embarrassed by this shouting, dancing, and praising. And much like the Pharisees, she had to get her little quip in. Here's how the story ends. And Michal, the daughter of Saul, had no child the day of her death. The son of David is not married to an unbeliever. See it? He's not. So she spends the rest of her life in her room alone and dies childless. But the reality of the situation is everyone who has no faith dies childless, even if they have physical children. Because Jesus talks about fruitfulness, the fruitfulness of the kingdom, as the one who bears fruit for the kingdom. And that only happens by faith in the one who humbly trusts in the Lord and His mercy and His forgiveness and grace and goes and tells the world of what Jesus has done and calls people to repent and to believe in Him. The one who does that Fathers and mothers, children and children and children. Some 60, some 30, some 100 fold. Right? Think about that. Coming back to our text now, let me remind you, blessed is the king who comes in the name of the Lord is the phrase I wanted you to remember. Let me read again from Jeremiah chapter 33, but a slightly different translation to help you see something here. In those days, Judah shall be saved. Jerusalem shall dwell in safety. And this is the name by which she shall be called. In our NIV, it says it. ESV, it says it. The Hebrew pronoun is she. The NASB gets it right, by the way. In those days, this is the name by which she shall be called. The Lord is our righteousness. So, this Advent, here we have our king riding in on a borrowed donkey, people disrobing before him, throwing their smelly clothes in front of him, and shouting, blessed is the king who comes in the name of the Lord. And the name of the Lord is the Lord is our righteousness. And she will be named by this. This is her name. And I think that references ultimately the church. We who are in Christ, we collectively are the bride of Christ. Yes, that includes you men as well. That's the metaphor. And like the brides of the past, when they're married, they take on the name of their husband. The name of the bride of the, of the Lord is this. The Lord is our righteousness. See, we come to Jesus in poverty. We come to Jesus in need. We come to Jesus without anything on our own. Just like he was humble and came on a borrowed colt, we come to Jesus bruised, beaten, battered, bankrupt spiritually, completely sinful and in need. And Jesus, rather than turn us away, says to us, I love you. And he goes to the cross and he bleeds and dies for our sins. And then he covers us in his righteousness. We are clothed in splendor beyond splendor. 
And this is what Jesus does for his bride. So that our name as the church is this. The Lord is our righteousness. Not a righteousness of your own. It's a righteousness given. And so this Advent season, as we anticipate the arrival of Jesus, the arrival of Jesus born of the Virgin, let us also anticipate his second Advent, where he comes in glory to call us from the grave, to clothe us in new bodies, and so we shall ever see him without end. And by the way, what's the first order of business upon Jesus' return after the creation of the new heavens and new earth? It's the wedding feast of the Lamb. So let us anticipate that day when we get to write on our documents, the Lord is our righteousness, because that's our name. In the name of Jesus, amen. Amen. Second sermon, the Lion of Judah is on the move. The text is the Gospel, Luke chapter 3, verses 1 through 14. Here we go. Holy Gospel according to St. Luke, chapter 3, verses 1 through 14. In the 15th year of the reign of Tiberius Caesar, when Pontius Pilate was governor of Judea, Herod, tetrarch of Galilee, and his brother Philip, tetrarch of Iturea and Trachonitis, and Licinius, the tetrarch of Abilene, during the high priesthood of Annas and Caiaphas, the word of God came to John, the son of Zechariah, in the desert, and he went out into all the country around the Jordan, preaching a baptism of repentance for the forgiveness of sins. As it is written in the book of the words of Isaiah the prophet, a voice of one calling in the desert, prepare the way for the Lord, make straight paths for him. Every valley shall be filled in, every mountain and hill made low. The crooked road shall become straight, the rough, the rough ways smooth, and all mankind will see God's salvation. John said to the crowds coming out to be baptized by him, You brood of vipers, who warned you to flee from the coming wrath? Produce fruit in keeping with repentance, and do not begin to say to yourselves, We have Abraham as our father, for I tell you that out of these stones God can raise up children for Abraham. The axe is already at the root of the trees, and every tree that does not produce good fruit will be cut down and thrown into the fire. What should we do then, the crowd asked. John answered, the man with two tunics should share with him who has none, and the one who has food should do the same. Tax collectors also came to be baptized. Teacher, they asked, what should we do? Don't collect any more than you are required to, he told them. Then some of the soldiers asked him, and what should we do? And he replied, don't extort money and don't accuse people falsely. Be content with your pay. In the name of Jesus. And when the Apostle Paul arrived at Antioch and Pisidia on his first missionary journey, he went to the synagogue as part of his proclamation of the gospel, and he reminded the people of the history and the story of the people of Israel. So this morning, to start off with, I'm going to borrow a little bit of Paul's retelling of that story. I'll add to it at the end here so that we can understand the historical context for our gospel text this morning. I'll be reading from Acts chapter 13. I'll start at verse 16 and go to 22. Here's what the Apostle Paul said to the people in the synagogue at Antioch of Pisidia. Men of Israel, you who fear God, listen. The God of this people, Israel, chose our fathers and made the people great during their stay in the land of Egypt. And with uplifted arm, he led them out of it. And for about 40 years, he put up with them in the wilderness. And after destroying seven nations in the land of Canaan, he gave them their land as an inheritance 
And all of this took about 450 years. And after that, he gave them judges until Samuel, the prophet. Then they asked for a king. God gave them Saul, the son of Kish, a man of the tribe of Benjamin, for 40 years. And when he had removed him, he raised up David to be their king, of whom he testified and said, I have found in David, the son of Jesse, a man after my heart who will do my will. Now, the rest of the Old Testament reveals that the people of Israel then went on to forsake the God who had delivered them from slavery. And in the time of the kings, they end up worshiping the false gods of Baal, Molech, Ashtoreth, and others. So God sent them prophets to call them to repent of their idolatry and to be forgiven. But they refused to listen, and they refused to repent. So God, in judgment, raised up Nebuchadnezzar, and he destroyed Jerusalem, 90% of the inhabitants of Israel. He also destroyed Solomon's temple and drugged the remnant of Israel, the survivors, into exile and captivity in Babylon. After 70 years had passed, the children of Israel returned to the land, and shortly after the return, God spoke through the final Old Testament prophet, and his name is Malachi. Malachi prophesied the appearance of both John the Baptist as well as the Messiah. So let me return again and read a portion of our Old Testament text this morning. Malachi chapter 3. Behold, I send my messenger. He will prepare the way before me. And the Lord whom you seek will suddenly come into his temple. And the messenger of the covenant in whom you delight, behold, he is coming, says the Lord of hosts. But who can endure the day of his coming and who can stand when he appears? And then the very final words of the prophet Malachi are these. Behold, I will send you Elijah the prophet before the great and awesome day of the Lord comes. And he will turn the hearts of the fathers to their children and the hearts of the children to the fathers, lest I come and strike the land with a decree of utter destruction. And then, after the prophet Malachi records these words given to him by God himself, then the Lord says, nothing. Nothing. Nothing was heard from God for 400 years. Complete silence from the throne of heaven as Israel was conquered by the Persians. Complete silence from God as they were then conquered by the Greeks. Complete silence from God as they were then subjugated to the Roman Empire. But despite God's silence, and despite the fact that Israel lost its freedom and was subjugated to occupation by a pagan empire, During the interim, God's written word still spoke, and God preserved the people of Israel, and he remembered his promises to Israel and to the world and to the Old Testament patriarchs of the seed of the woman who would come to crush the head of the serpent. And so in this today's gospel text, God breaks his silence, and he signals that he's about to do something incredible. It is like the story of the inhabitants of Narnia. Now, I apologize, I have to use a little bit of a metaphor here, and hopefully you have all read the Chronicles of Narnia. The first book is absolutely brilliant, and it's entitled The Lion, the Witch, and the Wardrobe. And we find in this story that the land of Narnia has been subjugated to an evil, wicked witch named Jadis, and she has made it always winter in Narnia, but never Christmas. That's got to really be awful. Right? Could you imagine winter here without Christmas? And so, but there was a prophecy... There was a prophecy that there would be four children, four descendants of Adam and Eve. 
sons of Adam and daughter of Aviv, who would be put on the throne at Caraparavel, and the witch's spell would be broken. So we pick up in the story here in the Chronicles of Narnia, where the children have come into Narnia, but they have not yet been, well, enthroned as kings and queens. In fact, they've got a harrowing battle to fight, and deathly things could happen to them. And so they're at the home of Beaver, Mr. and Mrs. Beaver, having dinner with them. I'm not sure what beavers eat, but I'm sure it's not as... Well, it might be better than Ludafisk, but anyway. (laughs) Let me pick up some of the dialogue here. Peter says, Not meaning to be rude, Mr. Beaver, but you see, we're strangers. Quite right, quite right, said the beaver. Here's my token. And with these words, he held up to them a little white object. They all took it looked at it in surprise until suddenly Lucy said, Oh, of course, it's my handkerchief, the one that I gave to poor Mr. Tumnus. That's right, said the beaver. Poor fellow. He got wind of the arrest before it actually happened and handed this over to me. He said that if anything happened to him, I must meet you here and take you on to... And here the beaver's voice sank into silence, and it gave one or two mysterious nods. And then signaling to the children to stand as close around as they possibly could so that their faces were actually tickled by its whiskers, it added in a low whisper, They say Aslan is on the move. Perhaps he's already landed. And now a very curious thing happened. None of the children knew who Aslan was any more than you do, but the moment the beaver had spoken these words, everyone felt quite different. Perhaps it has some... Times happen to you in a dream that someone says something which you don't understand, but in the dream feels as if it had some enormous meaning, either a terrifying one which turns the whole dream into a nightmare or else a lovely meaning, too lovely to put into words, which makes the dream so beautiful that you remember it all of your life and are always wishing that you could get into that dream again. It was like that now. At the name of Aslan, each one of the children felt something jump in its inside. Edmund felt a sensation of mysterious horror. Peter felt suddenly brave and adventurous. Susan felt as if some delicious smell had some delightful and or some delightful strain of music had just floated by her. And Lucy got the feeling you have when you wake up in the morning and realize that it's the beginning of the holidays or the beginning of summer. And so in our gospel text this morning, it's like the inhabitants of Narnia. The people of Israel, with the arrival of the promised Elijah, began to stir. Their hearts began to hope. Maybe, just maybe, the lion of the tribe of Judah was on the move and perhaps had already landed on their shores. Finally, our redemption has drawn nigh. And indeed, it has He has. And just as he had promised, the Lord sent his messenger ahead of him, a messenger who would signal his imminent appearing, but who would also prepare them for his arrival. Which then begs the question, how are people prepared for the arrival of their merciful, forgiving, and pardoning Savior? Answer, they're prepared through the preaching of God's law. And they're called to repent. You see, you're not ready to be forgiven until you know that you're a sinner. You're not. Jesus has come to save the ungodly, and unless you understand that you're one of them, He's got nothing to offer you. So they're prepared 
the same way that we are prepared for Jesus' arrival. They're prepared through the preaching of repentance. And this is why Advent has always historically been a penitential season. Because this is how you prepare for the arrival of your Savior. And so we return now to our text, and I'll be reading from my translation. Now in the 15th year, the government of Tiberius Caesar, Pontius Pilate being governor of Judea, Herod being tetrarch of Galilee, Philip his brother being tetrarch of the region of Iturea and Trachonitis, and Lysenius being tetrarch of Abilene. In the time of the high priest Annas and Caiaphas, the word of God came to John, the son of Zechariah, in the wilderness. Two notes here. One, you'll notice that this didn't take place a long time ago in a galaxy far, far away in the foggy, misty time of mythology. This happened in human history. But you'll also notice here that much like the prophets of the Old Testament, over and again it would say the word of the Lord came to the prophet Malachi. The word of the Lord came to the prophet Isaiah. The word of the Lord came to the prophet Hosea. The word of the Lord came to John, the son of Zechariah. This is a man who has one foot in the Old Testament and one foot in the New. He's part prophet and part preacher of the gospel. Kind of a transition figure, if you would. And so he went into all the surrounding region of the Jordan proclaiming a baptism of, listen carefully, repentance for the forgiveness of sins. This is odd. This is really odd. The reason why is because how did people get their sins dealt with in this time? Take an animal to the temple, sacrifice it. But John's not pointing them to the temple. He's pointing them to the waters of baptism, something completely new. And so it continues, as it is written in the book of the words of Isaiah the prophet, a voice of one shouting in the wilderness, prepare the way of the Lord, be making his path straight. Every valley will be filled and every mountain and hill will be made low. The crooked paths will become straight and the rough will become smooth paths, and all flesh will see the salvation of God. And so, our sin here is likened to crooked paths, likened to mountains, likened to all things that aren't straight, and flat, and perfect. So, this prophet, preacher, Baptist, is going to prepare the way of the Lord and fill in all the mountains and valleys, Make all the paths rather than rambling and running this way and that. Straighten them all out. Referring to our sin. And then it says this. All flesh will see the salvation of God. Hold on to that sentence. We'll come back to it. Therefore, he was saying to the crowds coming out to be baptized by him. This is not a feel-good message. You ready? Here's his message. You brood of vipers, who showed you to flee from the wrath to come? I don't think any church council would call this guy as their pastor. (laughs) Right? Yeah. Who warned you to flee from the wrath to come? Produce fruits worthy of repentance. And don't begin to say within yourselves, we have Abraham as our father. Notice, He's countering their religious claims. We're children of Israel. We're descendants of Abraham. We, are, we have an inside track with God. Not so. Not so. For I say to you that God is able to raise up children for Abraham from these stones. And indeed, the axe is already lying at the root of the trees. Therefore, every tree not producing good fruit is cut down and thrown into the what? Fire. Referring to the fires of hell. 
Let me pull a little John the Baptist here. So do you think that because you've shown up to church, that makes you a Christian? Do you think that maybe because you put a few coins in the plate when it's passed around Sunday after Sunday, that makes you a Christian? If that's what you think makes you a Christian, you need to repent. You need to repent. God owns the cattle on a thousand hills. He doesn't need your measly coins. If you think the things you do are the things that save you, you are wicked and still in your sins. Don't think for a second that you can be saved by what you're doing. The text continues. So the crowds were questioning him, saying, what then shall we do? And this is important. The the next couple verses make it clear that they're asking this question after they're baptized. If you don't understand that, you're going to confuse and think, well, the thing i got to do in order to be saved is to do right things. That's not what he's saying. He was baptizing them for the forgiveness of their sins. They're coming up out of the water going, now what? Right. Whereas in the book of Acts, chapter 2, remember that great preaching of the Apostle Peter on the day of Pentecost? He preaches law and gospel. Everyone's cut to the quick. And then they said, brothers, what shall we do? And what does Peter say? Repent and be baptized, every one of you, for the forgiveness of your sins. So the people on the day of Pentecost are asking prior to baptism. These people are asking after they've been baptized, after they've been forgiven. This is what's going on. So the crowds were questioning him, saying, what should we do? And having responded, he was saying to them, all right, let the one having two tunics give to the one not having, and let the one having food be doing likewise. And tax collectors also came to be baptized, and they said to him, teacher, what should we do? And the one said to them, be collecting nothing more than the amount having been commanded. In other words, you've now been forgiven of your sins, set free from bondage to sin, death, and the devil. You want to know what freedom looks like? Stop living for yourself. Start thinking about others. Love them. Serve them. The ones serving as soldiers, they were also questioning him and, and us. What should we do? He said to them, don't violently extort anyone or extort with false charges and be content with your wages. So like these soldiers tax collectors and people coming to be baptized, we need to remember that we ought not think for a second that doing good works out of fear or punishment or an expectation of a reward from God is a good work. The reason why you're doing your good works is because you fear his punishment and because you're expecting a reward, then those works are selfish works and they're done only for yourself and they're not for the good of your neighbor. Keeping a tally sheet saying, you know, the way I figure it, God, is that, you know, based on all of these great things I've done for other people, I'm thinking maybe eight or ten lanes on my Olympic-sized swimming pool in my heavenly mansion. You haven't done a single good work then for anyone else. You've done every single one of them for you. Those are not good works. In fact, keep this in mind. You don't have to have faith to obey God's law. Anybody can do it. They tried hard enough. Not perfectly, but make some progress at it. Pagans do things written in God's law, and they have no faith in God. Do you think God's going to sit there and say, well, I understand that you didn't believe in Jesus and that your sins were never forgiven, but man, you were like in the 80th percentile of moral people You know, at the end of the day. I'm going to go ahead and let you in. That's not how that works. There's no other name given under heaven by which men must be saved. 
So good works apart from faith are wicked. Good works done because you are forgiven and have faith are truly good works. You see the difference? You don't do your good works in order to receive God's forgiveness. You do them because you have God's forgiveness. So those works, if you're doing them out of fear from God or an expectation of reward, they're selfish and they're not done for your neighbor, even worse. Those kinds of works do not require faith in God. Those types of works are worthless before God because they are thinly veiled attempts to save and justify yourself rather than receive salvation as a gift. So repent. God is not so cheaply bought off. The price of your salvation is not some measly, grovelly works done by you so that you can save your own skin or bargain with God for better rewards in heaven. You think that's what your good works are for, you need to repent. The price of your salvation are not the plastic, cheap Chinese trinkets of your good works. The price of your salvation is the very blood of a perfect and spotless sacrifice. And that sacrifice is Christ. We need to repent. The people baptized by John asked, what then shall we do? They were not asking this in order to be forgiven. Verse 3 says that John was proclaiming a baptism of the forgiveness of sins. The reason they asked, what shall we do, was because they were forgiven. So I asked the question, this is going to be rough, are you prepared for the arrival of the Lion of the tribe of Judah? Are you prepared for his advent? He's on the move. He will arrive very shortly. And his winnowing fork is in his hand. And when he arrives, he will thresh the wheat, separate the wheat from the chaff. The wheat he will gather into his barn, but the chaff will be burned up with unquenchable fire. Repent, therefore. Stop trying to bargain with God. He cannot be bargained with. He's not coming to negotiate with you. He's not coming to negotiate the terms of your surrender. He's coming to judge you. See the difference? Remember, read what we read in verse 3. All flesh will see the salvation of God. And you have heard the salvation proclaimed to you. Let me read it from the Gospel of John, chapter 6. He came to Jesus and said, What must we be doing to do the works of God? Chapter 6, verse 28. Jesus answered them, This is the work of God, that you believe in Him who He has sent. So stop believing that you're good and that you can do enough good things to placate God. You're not good. And if that is the reason that you're doing your good works, your good works will be the very thing that damn you, not your sins. So repent, change your mind, and instead believe in the one whom the Father has sent to save you, to die for your sins, the one who washes away your sins in the waters of your baptism, and the one who feeds you with his very body and blood for the forgiveness of your sins. All of this he does as a gift out of his great love and mercy and compassion for you. Repent, believe, be forgiven, and then do your good works for your neighbor, not for you. You don't need them to bargain with God. You have Jesus, and he's paid your debt in full for you already. In the name of Jesus, amen. Amen. So what did you think? Love to get your feedback. If you'd like to email me regarding anything you've heard on this edition or any previous editions of Fighting for the Faith, you can do so. My email address is talkback at fightingforthefaith.com or you can subscribe on Facebook, facebook.com forward slash Christian. Follow me on Twitter. My name there at Christian. Till next week, may God richly bless you in the grace and mercy won by Jesus Christ his vicarious death on the cross for all of your sins. Amen. <laughs>